Um, welcome to the National Library. Uh, I'm Stuart Baines, Acting Director of Community Outreach Branch here at the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present, for caring for this land. We are now privileged to call our home. I myself grew up on the lands of the Awabakal people and was in a position to attend a primary school where they recognised and valued the First Nations people and exposed us to their culture. I've now lived and worked for many years on the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. I am proud to be part of a national institution that plays a part in sharing the collections, cultures and languages of Indigenous Australians through its events and education programs. It's my pleasure today to welcome you all to the library. For today's event, we are here to celebrate the exhibition Inked Australian Cartoons, which will close its doors next Sunday. So I hope if you haven't visited yet that you will visit today after we've finished, after Guy has inspired you. And if you have already visited, visit again. Inked features a selection of the best cartoons from the National Library of Australia's extensive collection. Drawing from over 14,000 cartoons, the exhibition is curated by Dr Guy Hansen, who is also Director of Exhibitions here at the Library. Today's Guy's, Guy's lecture will provide a short history of Australian cartooning from the Bulletin and investigating the emergence of cartoonists as serious social commentators of the 20th century. Please join me in welcoming Dr Guy Hansen. Uh, thanks very much, Stuart, um, for the introduction. Uh, as Stuart said, I am looking specifically at the bulletin today, um, and that is a subset of the cartoons which are on display upstairs. We go far beyond the bulletin upstairs, but there is, a in the early section of the exhibition, there's some lovely examples of uh, bulletin cartoons in there. So, um, the bulletin is perhaps one of the most famous periodicals in Australian print history. So I'll have a put up a cover for you, I think. There we go. That might be the sort of thing you think of when you think of the Bulletin. Um, this weekly magazine was produced from 1880 to 2008, um, sometimes known as the Bushman's Bible. It quickly established reputation as a national public publication. It prided itself on presenting the very best of Australian cartooning and writing. While it was based in Sydney, it always sought to transcend the parochial interests of New South Wales and articulate a unique Australian view of domestic and international events. Reading the bulletin from the 1880s is both familiar and strange at the same time. It's like looking through an old family photo album. You recognise many of the people and events depicted. They relate to stories that you've heard from family and friends. Many more of the images, however, relate to events and personalities long forgotten. Looking at these images raises as many questions as it answers. Commentators writing about the bulletin often point to its importance as a nursery for Australian black and white art. In particular, the period dating from the 1880s through to the First World War is often seen as the golden age of Australian cartooning. For some, the, this argument is taken even further to suggest that the bulletin of this period produced some of the best cartoonists in the world. This is one of those statements often asserted but rarely tested. Very few people today have actually gone back and looked in detail at the Bulletin and its cartoons. Today I'm going to take you on a guided tour of the Bulletin during its golden age and draw some modest conclusions about the significance of this periodical. 
To give some structure to this story, I'm going to concentrate on some of the key artists who were published in the magazine at this time. I'm going to look at Livingston Hopkins, or Hop as he was known, Phil May, Norman Lindsay, B.E. Minns, David Souter and David Lowe. This is just a small number of the hundreds of cartoonists who worked for the Bulletin in the lead up to the First World War. The library is very lucky to hold examples of original artwork by all of these artists and some of the best of them are on display in the exhibition upstairs. Before jumping into the story of the Bulletin star cartoonists, I need to do a short advertisement for Trove. Some of you will be aware that the Bulletin is now digitised and available um, at your desktop. Uh, the digital humanities scholar Tim Sherritt, who's at uh, University of Canberra, has written some very clever code which tracks down Bulletin cartoons from the digital archive and presents them in a very digestible fashion. Tim's cartooning guide allows you to see the Bulletin's title page cartoons in isolation while also giving you the opportunity to dive back into the Bulletin to see it, see it in its original context. This does not capture all of the cartoons in the Bulletin, but it does point to some of the most important ones. Previously, this kind of research would have taken months, but now, thanks to, thanks to Tim's shortcut, can be done in a matter of days. So literally, I looked at something like 4,000 cartoons in preparation for this paper, and I was just able to quickly do this clicking through um, copies of the bulletin. Um, so traditionally, what I would have done is sat in the meeting, reading room and called up the bound volumes of the bulletin and slowly flicked my way through, um, but now I can do it very efficiently at my desk. I have to thank Tim for this, but I also have to admit, admit that I missed the older, more leisurely type of research. Um, one more thing that I need to do before beginning our guided tour of the bulletin is to provide a warning that some of the images that I'm going to show are, by today's standards, offensive. Uh, many of them are quite explicitly racist. While I'll be discussing these images in their historical context, I'm very much aware they can be deeply offensive to a modern audience. Indeed, some of the Im images, um, I would argue, were deeply offensive at the time that they were drawn. My aim in showing these images is not just to stand in judgment of the past, nor to generate a gratuitous shock, but rather to provide a clear-eyed assessment of what the bulletin was like. Exploring how Australian cartoonists depicted Asians and Aborigines is still very relevant today. You cannot look at these cartoons without recognising that racism is very deep in the DNA of modern Australia. So let's begin our tour of the bulletin. As I mentioned before, the bulletin was established in 1880. Its founding editors were John Feltnam Archibald and John Hayes. It quickly grew to be one of the major magazines distributed throughout the colonies. At this time, there were approximately 600 newspapers and magazines being produced uh, in Australia. These include country papers, town papers, suburban papers, metropolitan dailies and metropolitan weeklies. Many of these publications were short-lived or had a limited audience. The bulletin, however, was different. It would last for over 100 years and develop an audience across Australia both in the cities and in the bush. I think it's important to remember that this was a period in which Australians were voracious consumers of print media. High levels of literacy and the beginnings of gaslight and electricity meant that reading was the main leisure activity for the population. This is long before there's competition from radio and television. Richard Twopenny, a well-known commentator, described Australia of the 1880s as the land of newspapers. Print was king. Um, when I think about this period, I think of it as uh, peak reading in Australian history. In terms of cartooning, it's important to remember that at the time the bulletin was established, photographs were not a major feature of magazines and newspapers. Daily newspapers did not, for the most part, 
feature illustration. The weeklies, however, did often have um, drawings and illustrations. It wouldn't be until the late 1890s that photos started regularly appearing. So to kind of, um, you're looking at a period where, where, where there's no photographs and it's really only the weekly magazines which can have these more lavish illustrations and that's to do with the production processes required. Later on, of course, illustration, both photographically and, and black and white art, would become an increasing part of, uh, of uh, newspapers and magazines. So um, let's go back a little bit before the bulletin. I want to give a little bit of a history before the bulletin. So we can go back to Punch. Now, Punch um, was a precursor of the bulletin and had started in England in the 1840s. Um, Punch was uh, good at echoing the tradition of political satires and prints that had been popular during the Georgian era. If you go up to the exhibition, you'll see some of these early Georgian satires. Um, Punch was heavily illustrated, and it was, in fact, Punch that popularised the term cartoon as a descriptor for satirical drawings and caricatures. The word originally referred, it's an Italian word, and it originally referred to uh, large drawings which were usually done on paper on a wall in preparation for a mural. Um, and it was in 1843 that uh, part of um, the British Houses of Parliament, they were preparing a mural on a wall, and these large cartoon paper drawings had been prepared, very worthy subjects for that mural. Um, and it was at that time that um, the punch artist John Leach gleefully appropriated the term mural from the British Parliament and those drawings to refer to his own drawings. And it was, of course, a, a joke because his, his, um, his drawings were in no way serious. Uh, but the, the term cartoon stuck and it's, of course, come, people rarely know what it was originally uh, for and it's now become the popular term for these sorts of drawings. Inspired by the earlier tradition of satirical prints or characters, Punch included a black and white print in each issue, almost like a little removable centrefold or poster. Punch's prints were much simpler than the earlier Georgian satires. Rather than numerous characters and extended talk balloons, um, the new prints featured only a small number of characters with little text. The limited edition hand-coloured engraving typical of Georgian satires had been replaced by the black and white woodblock prints, um, which were produced as a supplement inside the magazine. This new style of cartoon foreshadowed what cartoons would become in the 20th century. Punch quickly grew to be one of the most successful humorous magazines of the 19th century. Versions of this magazine could be seen all across um, the, the world. And in the Australian context, there was a Melbourne punch and a Sydney punch, and I think there was also an Adelaide punch. Um, so this is sort of an ex in a, in a successful business model which exists prior to the bulletin. Another important precursor to the bulletin um, were uh, selections of print drawings um, which were sold. Uh, one of the most famous of those was those produced by S.T. Gill. Um, and here you can see the cover of uh, one of his collections of humorous drawings of Australia. Now, um, S.T. Gill was originally from England. Um, he'd come out to Australia and following the discoveries of gold um, in Ballarat and Bendigo, he made his way to the gold fields. And over the next 20 years, he published several collections of drawings of life on the gold fields. These were often humorous drawings and picked up on the, on the nice little things which are happening on the gold fields. Some of you might have seen the S.T. Gill exhibition we had a couple of years ago. Um, so I just want to get this idea across that you have punch and you have things like S.T. Gill had already established uh, that there was an appetite for humorous drawings about Australian culture. 
Uh, just one example um, which I have in the exhibition of ST Gill is this lovely drawing of some miners celebrating. Um, effort. They've gone back to Melbourne and they're spending their hard-earned gains uh, in a drinking establishment. Um, so I like to think there's a direct line between Punch and ST Gill in the Bulletin. Um, the founders of the Bulletin wanted to take the elements that Punch and Gill had already demonstrated and use them in a national magazine about Australia. So the bulletin formula as such was to have the best writing and the best cartooning available all delivered in a distinctly Australian voice. So it was very ambitious at this time in the 1880s to produce something which would be for all across Australia because uh, we're still in the period of the colonies. Before I get into the detailed story of the cartoonist, I just want to dip my lid to uh, the writers of the bulletin because indeed it's most probably the writers who are even more famous than the, uh, than the cartoonists and in particular... Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson. They were a very important part of the stable of uh, writers and poets who worked on the bulletin and helped make it so successful. And sometimes the writers came together with the cartoonists. And I'll just include this slide here. Um, Christmas edition of the bulletin is always a nice one to look at. Uh, and you can see the man from Ironbark with, with illustrations uh, done as well. So um, I don't want you in any way to think that I'm forgetting about the writers. It's just not the subject of today's talk. So, returning to the story of how cartooning developed at the Bulletin, we can look at the first edition of um, the magazine in 1880 and we can see a different sort of magazine. It is at this point quite staid. So they've just opened, they're still using the traditional uh, woodblock technology. It looks very much like many other uh, weekly newspapers at this period. It hasn't developed the kind of style that it would later. So it wasn't a little bit until until uh, the mid-1880s that the bulletin started to become what we'd, we'd think of it um, today as this sort of full of uh, cartoons. Um, so some of the changes was in 1883, the bulletin uh, started having the red cover, and I've actually brought a bulletin along um, here. So you can see, uh, um, you, it is nice just to see what the old-fashioned bulletin used to look like, and you can also see that a main feature of the bulletin was uh, the um, use of the front page was very much used for advertising um, and would often be a couple of pages in before you actually got to the front page of, of the actual magazine. So um, I think we forget what, it used, what these papers used to look like. So um, let me, so moving from about the mid-1880s, let me sort of step you through what the bulletin was like and how it used cartoons. So um, the bulletin would often feature, well, nearly in every edition from, from, this, from the mid-1880s onwards, have a, a cover page which was a couple of pages inside the red cover and would be the real cover page. And it, they used their star cartoonists to always illustrate full panel cartoon on this cover. And this is what um, Tim Sherratt's uh, software is so good at finding, is these cartoons. And here you can see a classic uh, caricature of Henry Parks by... Um, Livingston Hopkins. Um, so another aspect of um, the bulletin um, all the, in this period all the way up to World War I was what they called cartoonlets. And these would be uh, kind of like the illustrated news where the, the print, the writing would be giving you a story from the week because it's a weekly, so you're catching up with the events and the artist would do these little tiny humorous drawings of what had happened. That was a, a big... Um, a, constant feature of the bulletin up until World War I. Um, 
It would also often have uh, these supplements um, or posters which you could remove and they would um, often be, you know, quite a strong, powerful illustration or cartoon. This one, of course, is a, is a World War I cartoon and it's, a, it's pretty much a... Um, you can see the German hordes descending on the um, wounded Australian soldiers and it's a bit of a plea um, for Australians to recruit, the bulletin being a, quite a patriotic um, paper. Um, and, of course, the other aspect of uh, the bulletin's cartoons were these uh, smaller cartoons which were inserted throughout the um, newspaper and uh, would often be illustrating the humorous stories or would just have a straight gag. So gag cartoons was very uh, common. Somebody would write the gag and then the artist would be asked to just do an illustration. Now... Um, this one here, you most probably can't read it, and I'm actually having trouble reading it here, but um, it, I'll just magnify it so I can just go back. And I'll read out the punchline, just a one to give you a sense of... of uh, so, uh, in that, it says, um, in, in the cow country, first cocky, herds had terrible bad luck, ain't he? Had a couple of his cows drowned, I hear. Second cocky, taint a couple of his cows... It's a couple of his youngsters, first cocky. Oh, is that right, is it? Wonderful how rumour exaggerates things, isn't it? <laughs> so fairly grim, colonial sense of humour. And you also see here the, um, you know, the, the archetype of the bushy, the big beard. Um, so as you went through the... Uh, this is a Norman Lindsay. As you went through the bulletin, you'd see these archetypes, characters. It'd be the new chum, the migrant from England, or you'd see the bushy and these things. And they became really part of the visual vocabulary of the bulletin. So they're the sorts of cartoons you'd see, these big editorial cartoons, but also these little illustrations, often related to some story or theme um, in the uh, paper. So hopefully I can get back to uh, normal now. OK. So let me also give you a sense of the editorial line um, of... Uh, I, I should say, the other thing about the bulletin too, if you go back and read it, it's actually quite hard to read because um, of the way people wrote in the um, 1800s. Like a Henry Lawson or Banjo Patterson, that's great. But there's actually long editorials, very argumentative, um, quite florid use of language. It's quite a strange experience reading um, the bulletin from this period. So if you want to transport yourself to a different time, go back and read some of the longer articles and see what you think. Um, but let me... I won't do that. I won't read out great chunks of the bulletin to you, but I'll, I will summarise um, its editorial line from this period. And here, um, I've just taken the masthead, and I just wanted to emphasise Australia for the white man. That was the um, the slogan on the uh, bulletin for a very long time, right up until initially in the 1880s. It was Australians for Australians, which of course related to the idea of um, a push for federation. And then, of course, coming into federation, it switched over to Australia for the white man, which um, was very much an expression of the white Australia policy. And it went all the way until the 1960s that that slogan stayed on the masthead. And then Donald Horne um, came in and removed it um, when he became editor of the bulletin. So it sort of gives you a sense of the, um, it, the, the way the bulletin saw the world. Um, but other major features of the editorial policy of the bulletin I'll, I'll capture now, and I'll do that by... I'll illustrate that with cartoons. So here, um, White Australia, I just mentioned, is on the thing, and, of course, the cartoonists often would draw um, uh, cartoons specifically extolling the virtues. And you can see Edmund Barton here 
sort of arguing with John Ball about the benefits of white, white Australia. Of course, the Colonial Office was, did not like the white Australia policy, but of course, the white Australia policy very popular in Australia. Um, the Bulletin was also, in, during this period, consistently anti-imperialist. Um, and you can see here that uh, you have the, the English characters um, trying to persuade the young Australia what to do. And the, the caption down the bottom reads, the price of imperialism. So um, there was this radical nationalist line in the Bulletin, and, and at times the Bulletin was very much pro um, a republic and really separating itself from the, the idea of an imperial commonwealth. Um, and I mentioned the bulletin was very um, pro-federation, so you'll find a lot of uh, editorial and cartoons um, promoting the benefits of Australia. And here you have a nice federation um, kangaroo crossing over the, uh, the, the Murray River here, helping to uh, um, unite Australia. And another thing about the bulletin um, was it was very, for most of its time, it was very pro-protectionist, and it, it believed in a tariff war, so Australia could develop its uh, own industries. And going back to um, before the existence of the Liberal Party and even before the Labor Party, the big uh, political split in Australia was often between free traders and protectionists, and uh, the bulletin very much firmly came down on the protectionist side of that debate. So that gives you a sense in the context which cartoonists were working uh, in the bulletin in this, this so-called golden age. Okay, so I can now turn to some of the cartoonists who are in our collection and are featured in the exhibition. The first one is Livingston Hopkins or Hop. Um, and he I think is perhaps the most interesting because he's there from the mid 1880s or early 1880s all the way through until World War I. So, Following Hop, you can pretty much see the whole story. Um, despite my comments about the Bulletin's ambition for it to be the best of Australian cartooning, the editors soon decided that there weren't really people in Australia who could do what was required, and they went seeking talent overseas. And so they went to America and recruited um, Hop. Hop had actually fought in the Civil War, and um, he was working in uh, New York as a cartoonist for a, a New York periodical. And, um, W.T. Trail, who was the then editor, approached him and persuaded him to come over to, to Australia. Offered him, you know, a, a, a very good living if he'd come to Australia. So he um, uh, uprooted himself and, and came over to, to Sydney. So um, you can see here uh, the character carrying the club with bulletin written on it. That's actually a caricature of Hop himself. And you can sort of see his attitude to cartooning. He very much saw himself as almost like a a hired thug for the bulletin who would um, ruthlessly crack the heads of politicians with his uh, satirical cartoons. So it's a lovely um, illustration. But his fame was such that he could actually put himself in the cartoons as well. Um, the thing, uh, one of the advantages that Hop had uh, was there had been a change in technology um, in printing. So the bulletin had new presses which had photo engraving, unlike the old woodblock um, Print, printing process, and I showed you earlier an example of that. The, uh, and, and Hopkins was able to use this technology much better. And you can see how much more lively his drawings are compared to that drawing which was on the first um, edition of the Bulletin. And this one here, you can see he's done a drawing of uh, Edmund Barton, and he's um, holding the, the newly um, delivered baby of the Commonwealth there. That, that's the little baby Australia there. 
And just as another kind of a lovely little uh, illustration of, of Hop, which sort of shows how his type of drawing really l freed up how, how artists could express themselves. Those old woodblock prints are very stiff. You start to see much more expressive drawing in this period. And uh, this one here, um, given we've just got the World Cup cricket on, I've, I've selected. Uh, and the, the caption reads, the big scrub team play to see which of them shall be emergency man in the final Australia versus England test match. So you can see some kids in the country enjoying their cricket. Okay, so Hop, um, and some of you may have heard me tell this story before, um, but it's, it's um, such an important story, I feel I need to tell it again. Um, uh, Hop is famous for inventing um, the little boy from Manly. And the little boy from Manly, this is the first time he appears in a cartoon, and you can see him here. Um, and at this stage, he's not called the little boy from Manly, he's called the little boy at Manly. Um, the story here is this cartoon was done uh, on the uh, occasion, it was done in 1885 on the occasion of New South Wales deciding to send a contingent to the Sudan um, in an expression of patriotic and imperial fervour. Um, and this was following uh, General Gorton um, being killed at, at Khartoum. And uh, the response to that was a range of expeditions went over to uh, um, basically give retribution, um, revenge for that event. And some New South Wales troops went. They didn't see a lot of action. Um, and the bulletin, with its anti-imperialist position, was very sceptical about whether New South Wales should be involved in this. And hence, when the New South Wales um, uh, troops returned, this cartoon satirised that event. And to, I've got a little bit of explanation to understand. This is the challenge of cartoons, is you've got to know a lot to understand what's going on in the cartoon. And uh, the reason why he's got a little boy is... Uh, at this time, when the troops had left um, uh, for Africa, uh, there had been a little boy who'd written a letter to the Premier of New South Wales. The Premier at this stage was uh, Daly. And uh, in the letter, he said how proud he was of seeing the contingent going out through the heads. And this letter had been reproduced and helped raise funds for the New South Wales contingent. And um, so the little boy from Manly was seen as this sort of patriotic figure and become a talking point in Sydney at the time. So Hop has deployed the little boy here, um, playing his little drum, and the New South Wales contingent comes back, and you can see here they are here. And Hop is making reference to a work called The Roll Call, which is a very famous patriotic work uh, which was well known. There was a copy of this painting on display in, at the New South Wales Art Gallery at this time. And uh, in this painting, you can see um, some Crimea, some British troops at Crimea, Crimea after a battle, um, badly injured, uh, but being nobly led and heroically um, doing their job as soldiers. So this is quite a patriotic and noble depiction of service in the imperial cause. And of course, that's juxtaposed with Hops, where he's borrowed the major elements of the painting. The officer is now um, Daly, but instead of riding a, a noble war steed, he's got an old nag. He's got a bunch of medals on his lap, which he's going to hand out. Um, and you can see that the worst injury we can see here is a sore tooth. So um, uh, it's, a, it's quite a satire of, uh, of imperialism. Now, this idea of the little boy representing Australia really took off and became a feature of Australian cartooning right up until World War II. And here you can see Hop using um, the little boy from Manly again in, uh, in a later cartoon. And in this time, he's using the idea of uh, 
the size of the debt, which is a small ball in 1866, and you can see by uh, um, 1906 the size of the debt has become much, much bigger. And you can also see the, uh, the anti-Semitic line of the bulletin um, with the depiction of the moon here in the end. So, you know, there's, a, there's some of these deep ideas um, uh, at play in the bulletin and, and in Hopp's work. And here is another um, cartoon which I really like, which shows the little boy um, from Manly here, um, standing in front of Hop. Hop is at his easel, um, and the little boy is concerned that Hop's no longer going to draw him because uh, Federation has come. But Hop, Hop is reassuring him that, yes, he thinks he needs uh, the little boy for a little bit longer yet. And, of course, he did, because uh, the little boy did continue to appear in cartoons, not only by Hop, but by many artists for some years. Now... All of that, um, all of those cartoons illustrated how Hop would regularly uh, just illustrate the editorial line of the bulletin and really prosecute the kind of uh, the argument which the editors of the bulletin wanted prosecuted. And another aspect of that was um, fear of uh, the Japanese. And in this cartoon, you can it, quite a racist cartoon. You can see um, Japanese nation is depicted as a uh, um, as a monkey and it's on top of a bear. And um, this, of course, is in 1905, not long after the Japanese had defeated the Russians, which was a great surprise to uh, um, uh, the Western powers that, that R Russia could be defeated by the Japanese. And the monkey saying, now that my hand is in, shall I go to Manila for some eagle shooting or to Australia for a kangaroo drive? Both very good sport, I should think. So you, you, you're seeing the, the bulletin wanted to prosecute this uh, argument that we had to be uh, scared of the Japanese. Okay. Right. So. And I thought, just as my final, um, uh, one of the, a late hop example of hop, um, he's getting quite an old man by this stage and his work's not, not as good as it was earlier, but I thought this is nice to show a Canberra audience because it's... Uh, it depicts uh, the federal capital site, um, Canberra, the ACT basically, and Hop's a bit dubious about the site and the, the um, Santa Claus is flying over in 1912 and he says, what, no chimneys to put toys in, no houses, no children, no nothing, we'll try again in another 10 years. So Santa Claus at the federal capital. So, okay, so that's, that's a few cartoons from Hop. Let me move now to another one of the bulletin stars, uh, Phil May. Um, like Hop before him, May was also recruited from overseas by William Trail. Male, May, who was working in London at the time, had achieved some notoriety as an illustrator, but was still struggling to establish a career. The offer to join the Bulletin gave him the chance to develop his talents, which would allow him to return to England, England later as a major cartooning talent. In fact, it's really quite weird. Um, you often see, think that People think that May is an Australian and is an example of one of the very successful Australian cartoonists who has gone overseas and proved how good they were, but he was actually English, came to Australia and went back. And some of the other Australian cartooning stars, as it turns out, are not actually Australian, Hop being another one. Um, the Bulletin used May's extraordinary graphic skills to bolster its editorial commentary. May proved to be an effective propagandist, just like Hop, and was able to develop the perfect visual metaphor to drive home the Bulletin's message. Which brings me to... Oh, well, there's an example of Phil May. And you can see Phil May um, was actually even a better draftsman than Hop. And his, his caricatures and his line work were just uh, amazing. And it really set the standard, or 
I think nearly all the artists wanted to approach the quality of line work that Phil May had. Um, but coming to him, Phil May as a propagandist, this work, which you can see in the exhibition, um, printed in, in the bulletin, is the, uh, the Mongolian octopus cartoon. Um, uh, and this comes from the 21st of August edition, 1886, which the bulletin had uh, devoted to condemning Chinese migration to Australia. Um, it has a series of articles which read like xenophobic rants, article after article argue that Chinese migrants suppress workers' wages, spread disease and promote gambling and corruption, while also encouraging opium use and prostitution. The bulletin was particularly concerned about the virtue of the colony's young women who, robbed of all agency, uh, would, would swoon under the influence of opium. May's cartoons captures all of these alleged vices in a single drawing. The metaphor of the octopus with its writhing tentacles reaching out to claim its victims is drawn from Victor Hugo's novel Toilers of the Sea from 1866. Hugo's description of the octopus as a devil fish reflects the fear of sea monsters which loomed large in the 19th century European imagination. In a chapter entitled The Monster, Hugo refers to octopuses as devil fish and describes their capacity to kill in blood-curdling prose. No grasp is like the sudden strain the cephalopod, it is with sucking apparatus that it attacks. The victim is oppressed by a vacuum drawing at numberless points. It is not a clawing or a biting, but an indescribable scarification. So that's fairly powerful political um, uh, rhetoric there. Um, and uh, that's the way the bulletin was. Um, and the bulletin continued its um, uh, uh, anti-Chinese policy right up to Federation and here's another example by May, um, a title cartoon again suggesting the dangers of prostitution and opium. So you can see lots of these sorts of cartoons in the bulletin if you flick through in, in the 1890s. Um, May actually left the bulletin after a fairly short stint and went back uh, first to Paris and then to London in 1890 but he continued to send cartoons for publication. Um, he became very famous for his work in London Punch and, and became a, a major cartoonist in England. So the next artist I want to look at is Norman Lindsay. Um, so Lindsay began contributing to the Bulletin in 1901 and he's very well known as a writer and artist in his own right. In some ways that's what he's most probably more remembered for than necessarily his work on the Bulletin. But he did work for the Bulletin for about 40 years and was a very consistent um, cartoonist and illustrator for them. Uh, again, like his predecessors, Hop and May, he was very much a propagandist. When looking at his cartoons, you're never left wondering where he stands on an issue. He enthusiastically illustrated the bulletin's editorial line. And in the period after Federation, this meant he was often on a mission to condemn imperialism and argue for a white Australia. And a few examples just to give a sense of his work. So this one here um, is, and I'll just read the caption for you. Um, not wanted, um, you have uh, John Bull saying, ah, I see you've finished with him, thanks, you can go, ho go home, my friends here can do all that is necessary. So this is an interesting cartoon because it's actually about um, the defeat of the Boers in South Africa. You can see the um, Boer on the ground there. The Australians, of course, participated in the, the war and um, uh, Lindsay is suggesting it wasn't such a good idea for Australia to get involved and behind, who's behind John Bull that you have, you have uh, basically Chinese and um, slave labour behind. So you, can, you begin to see some of the issues of race and anti-imperialism in the bulletin at this time. 
Um, here is another cartoon from 1905, which is the, the earliest I found, there most probably are earlier, but just in the survey I did recently, of Norman Lindsay using the yellow peril. So the, the um, uh, caption down here says, waking his big brother, the yellow peril, to Australia. So you have like a Japanese admiral who's just defeated the Russian fleet, and the concern here is that, um, that this leads to a realisation that China will now emerge as a major power. So it's sort of looking into the future. So this is this, this idea of the, the threat from the north, which was very pow powerful in Australia, um, and indeed is still powerful today. Um, and uh, you can see that, that, that work from Lindsay. And again, on the, uh, the Japanese question, um, you have all the way um, right up, uh, indeed right up to World War II, you, you have a, a constant set of editorials and cartoons of depicting that Australia isn't taking the threat from Japan seriously. Um, so here you can see the little boy from Manly, he's not wearing his cap on this occasion, but he's fallen asleep um, and uh, you can see a, a Japanese imperialist um, military uh, person coming up behind him. So uh, that's the sort of thing that you would see in the bulletin from Norman Lindsay. Um, Lindsay, uh, I think some of the most impressive and interesting stuff from Norman Lindsay comes from his work done during the First World War. And he particularly liked to use uh, mythic um, uh, metaphors and gods to depict his story. And here you can see the little boy from Manly just hearing the news that the First World War has broken out, looking somewhat confused in the corner. And you see the god of war banging his gong above. And we're very lucky uh, in the collection to actually have um, the original of this cartoon as well, which has been inscribed um, by Norman Lindsay, uh, and it was done just in 1914. So that's one of the nice things in our collection. We can match up some original works with these, with these, um, with the publication. Another work from Norman Lindsay during the war, and you can see here he's deploying his propaganda skills against the Germans rather than the Japanese in this case. And here's a little brief description he has of drawing war cartoons, which we actually have an oral history of Norman Lindsay. What happened there? just about to play that. I must have accidentally knocked it off. We won't worry about that. We'll keep going. Um, so, again, more of Lindsay's uh, anti-German cartoons. Uh, this sort of um, this uh, depiction of Prussian militarism and uh, the death and destruction of World War I. Um, counterpoint to this was the square-jawed Australian soldiers who were nobly defending the line. Um, in the background here, you can see the slackers who are staying home, still playing sport and doing things like that, and they need to come to the front line. Um, so this actual work later became a recruitment poster. Um, and here is a, uh, a cartoon from the very end of the war where you can see, uh, again, he's using these mythic... You've got the Grim Reaper and you've got the Devil um, replete after all the mayhem and massacre they've caused during the First World War. And here's another one of Norman Lindsay's recruitment posters where you can see the German monster... Um, there you can see the original artwork, which is in our collection uh, on this side, and then on the other side you can see uh, the actual poster. So pretty ferocious stuff. Okay, so I'm going to now move on to another artist, just briefly a couple more artists, um, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, this is uh, B.E. Minns. 
So he wasn't quite of the rank of some of these other guys I've been talking at, but a regular contributor to the Bulletin um, after Federation. Very famous watercolourist. He also was English, strangely enough. So few of these guys actually turn out to have come from Australia. Um, Minns, uh, I think the really interesting thing about Minns was the way he depicted Aboriginal people. So the Bulletin um, was quite affectionate towards its, in its depiction of Indigenous people, but also usually was very patronising and often depicted them um, as simpletons or figures of fun. Um, so this is, Minns became very famous for this sort of depiction of, uh, of um, uh, Aboriginal people. And in some senses, when I look at Minns, he's a bit of a precursor of that later type of artwork, which some of you might be familiar with, um, the Brownie Downing plates, the ceramic plates which have the illustrations of Aboriginal people. So it is affectionate but deeply racist, deeply patronising. I won't read the joke which is on the joke box here because it is quite racist, but um, that they, they would often have these sort of gags where these two characters would say things. Just as a counterpoint to that, I wanted to include this uh, work from Norman Lindsay, which shows the bulletin did have a slightly complex attitude towards Indigenous people, and there were other cartoons which I could have used to demonstrate this. But this is almost like a national museum. I see the figure on the left is almost like a curator here giving a guided tour, and here's an Indigenous man challenging him and saying, in your story of Australian history, where are the Aboriginal people? So you can see the bushranger, you can see the convict, you see kangaroo, you can see all these figures, but... It's kind of like challenging in Australia to say, well, you've left Aboriginal people out of the history. So I, I find this uh, a very interesting cartoon from, from 1912. OK, I'm going to move to another cartoonist now, David Souter. And I, I, I've included him because he's the great stylist of the bulletin, um, particularly coming into the 20s. Lovely uh, Art Deco-type illustrations. I'll just show you a few examples. So really gorgeous artwork, magnificent artwork. Um, and beautiful um, stuff. Uh, lovely drawings. Now, the, the, um, I have to tell you, they're very sexist. Um, so I'll read out the caption on this one. But why do you keep on calling me... Why do, but why do you keep calling me Arthur? Didn't I tell you my name was Charlie? Of course, how stupid of me. But I keep thinking this is Wednesday. <laughs> so, yes. So the, the bulletin was full of a lot of this sort of stuff as well. Um, uh, jokes about married life, about middle-aged men and younger women. Wouldn't pass muster these days, but it, it's all there if you want to go back and have a look at it in Trove. So um, I will now uh, move to David Lowe, who, uh, again, is a cartoonist often lauded as being an Australian, but is actually a New Zealander. And he came from Christchurch in New Zealand, came over to work in the Bulletin just prior to World War I. And he broke the mould because all of these other artists we've been talking about have been very willing propagandists. David Lowe was the first of the Bulletin cartoonists who started saying, I'm not really happy with drawing whatever you tell me to draw. When he first got to the Bulletin, um, he was mainly doing smaller works. Uh, um, I'll come back to that. I'll, I'll keep going, though. Um, he was mainly doing the small, smaller cartoonlets and things like that. But over time, he was given um, permission. Here we go, cartoonlets here. You've got an example of this sort of uh, more minor work inside the paper, and he would do that. Over time, he uh, got permission to do some of the editorial panels and some of the larger cartoons. So here's one of um, uh, Australians on, at war and... Uh, 
Here's another one of Billy Hughes. So the Billy Hughes series is very important because this really makes, um, uh, this really makes his reputation um, as a cartoonist. It's his, his sort of battle with Billy Hughes and he's he, almost like Billy Hughes' nemesis. He's constantly attacking what Billy Hughes is up to. And this is an early front page. And uh, this is uh, one from when Hughes was at the peace conference in Paris. Um, and... Uh, this is the Billywog one we just had up before, and I'll read this one out. Um, directions for use. Blow up with wind until head expands, then release hole in face, whereupon Billy will emit loud noises until he goes flat. Um, which, of course, is how Lowe saw Billy Hughes, was that he was a very uh, sort of very, constantly promoting war and, you know, very, the way he was prosecuting the peace process, the retribution on the Germans, and, and Lowe thought that was a bad thing. Um, there was a story, um, well, all of Lowe's anti-Hughes um, cartoons were so popular that um, he actually was able to produce a book which was sold 60,000 copies, which was one of the best-selling cartoon books ever produced in Australia. Um, and it was this book which actually drew uh, the attention of English newspapers to David Lowe because they'd seen how successful and how good his work was. Um, apparently, Billy Hughes was presented with a copy of this book and he immediately screwed it up and threw it in a bin, <laughs> didn't like it. And during the war, um, the censors did try to stop publication of some of Lowe's cartoons, but the bulletin actually stood by Lowe and, and um, tried to stop him. But it's interesting in this period, when you um, read Lowe's biography, which is strangely called Lowe's autobiography, um, <laughs> It, uh, there's a quote which is quite different to the approach of the other cartoonists, um, and I read it out. It did not suit me to work in an office drawing ideas to order under the nose of an editor. I began to fall out of the paper's policy and mistrustful of the ideas that went with it. And then another quote. There came a day when, in a spasm of integrity, I refused to draw one of the editor's Jap monkey ideas. To his great astonishment, sit down, he said. I did, and explained myself. I got everything off my chest. So he wasn't happy at the bulletin and he didn't like the, the very polemic nature of the bulletin and the way it expected his cartoons to be. And he started sending uh, copies of his cartoons in the Billy Book to um, English editors. He was a very ambitious man. He always, I think, wanted to go to London. Um, and eventually, um, Henry Cadbury, one of the owners of the Star in London, was so impressed by his work that he offered a lower position on his paper. Um, Lowe accepted and went, moved to London. And over the next 30 years, he'd become one of the best-known cartoonists in the English-speaking world. Um, he's perhaps best remembered for his anti-fascist anti cartoons that he did for the Evening Standard during the Second World War. And this is one of the most famous ones, which is done just after um, Dunkirk. Uh, so, I should um, wrap up. The bulletin began to fade in importance after the First World War. There was competition from other newspapers, magazines, particularly Smith's Weekly, that really impacted on the Bulletin's audience. Um, it had a brief comeback in the 1960s under Donald Horne, but it was a, um, it really, by the end of the 20th century, it was a bit of a shadow of its former, former self, and in 2008, it ceased publication. So what can we say about the um, cartoonists of the Bulletin? I think you can say they were hugely popular um, and um, particularly in that early period helped produce one of the most successful national weekly papers in the history of Australia. Um, I think the early cartoonists are very interesting because you can see them grappling with how to articulate a national voice for Australia. Um, they anticipated the formation of uh, the Australian nation and they 
came up with metaphors like um, the little boy from Manly to express that. Uh, I think when you look back at the work of the bulletin artists, it gives you a window into how many Australians saw the world at this time. You can see, uh, you can see issues like racism, sexism, and also uh, pride and nationalism all reflected in their work. So whatever you feel about these images, I think it's a very valuable magazine for understanding Australia. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. I think I'm going to have to get a copy of the Billy book to have a look at. Um, now, we have time for questions. If you have any questions, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you. Um, that's for the benefit of those people watching live on our Facebook stream and also for those of you using the hearing loop. Uh, questions? <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Can you hear me? Is this on? <laughs> Um, what about Oliphant? Did Oliphant ever work for the Bulletin? Um, no, I haven't seen his work in... He, he, Oliphant went over to America. And you think he was... Um, was he South Australian he originally? He was, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I'm not familiar with him being on the Bulletin. I, for this particular paper, I, I really focused on the period um, 1880 to um, 1914. And Oliphant, of course, is um, post-World War II. Yeah, Olofen is just a... Yeah, you're right. Olofen is one of the people they point to as being one of the great Australian cartoonists who, who went overseas. Yeah. I'm interested in the technology. You said when that, that cartoon of Edmund Barton holding the infant Australia, you said something about a new process that yes. had photo in it. How do we actually get from an original artwork, which presumably is ink, piece of ink on a piece of paper, to a picture printed in a magazine? Yes. How, what are the steps there? Very good question. I'll, I'll do my best to answer it, but I can't claim I fully understand. Um, the, so it's in some ways it's much easier to understand the earlier wood block engraving process because that's um, a mirror image being cut out of the wood block and then that wood block being used. And you see those early bulletin cartoons have got that quite... And the, and the, and the um, punch cartoons have that quite stiff thing. What I think um, happened with uh, the new photo engraving technology which came in in the 1880s, it allowed artists to draw onto large artboards. And you can see the scale of the work. When you go into the exhibitions, the cartoons from that period are huge. They're massive. And then they went for a photographic process um, which was transferred to some kind of printing plate. Exactly how that was done, I'm not sure. And there's a number of different photo engraving processes over the years. So later on... Um, I think after World War I, you have uh, letterpress printing is replaced by other sorts of printing. So this is not the only time that printing technology changes how cartooning looks. But specifically the shift, the reason why you can move... The photo engraving process did allow artists to express themselves much more freely because it wasn't being reinterpreted by a woodblock maker and uh, there, there was just more capacity in terms of showing shades and colour. So the Norman Lindsay cartoons, for example, you begin, you, you begin to see shades come into that. That would not be possible in the earlier woodblock period. That's hence the cross-hatching you see in older woodblock um, cartoons. That's how they do their shade and that. Thank you. Hi. That was really very interesting. Thank you very much. Um, I'm wondering about the use of balloons for dialogue. And uh, we don't, I don't think we've seen very much of that in the presentation you've given us. And I'm wondering whether that was driven more by technological advances or 
but just the idea someone had that this was a very good way to, to uh, enrich the, the, the picture. Um, well, balloons were used um, a lot in the earlier Georgian satire um, cartoons. I may even be able to find you an example. Um, uh, no, I don't know if I have a copy here. But um, the... So you look at the earliest Georgian satirical prints, which are people like Gilray, you'll see these massive talk balloons with huge amounts of text written in them. And so they, it was a convention in cartooning. But once they go over to woodblock um, printing, I think it's quite difficult, because those are actually done as plates. They're not done... Um, they're, photo, they're etchings rather than um, uh, woodblock prints. But once you get to magazines like Punch... I think it, they just try and simplify everything. So the number of characters reduces, the use of talk balloons reduces, and the captioning is done on the bottom, usually printed on the bottom. So you, you get this, this different convention of cartooning emerging. And, of course, there's a different um, cartooning history, which I'm not talking about today, uh, which is uh, comic strips. Um, and then in comic strips, you start having those talk balloons and things used in, in those. So um, all through the 20th century, you have another... Um, history of cartooning relates to comic books and things like that. Um, and so today, you'll get artists like Kathy Wilcox and things like that will use a talk balloon. So it has come in and out of um, editorial cartooning. Sure. I'm sorry. This is going back to my childhood. Grade six, Loxton Area School. The cartoon that you had with the Japanese man leaning over the boy from Manly and yes. the ink bottle spilt. Yes. We were sitting down behaving ourselves. The, prince, uh, the teacher came in and the ink bottle had been tipped and there was this big splotch of ink. And, of course, he was extremely unhappy, roared... Yeah. The person who did it was told to come out and clean it up. He went out and it was when plastic was first invented. He picked up the ink blot. The ink bottle itself still had its lid on. And it was a situation where you didn't know whether you were permitted to laugh or not because of the <laughs> reputation of this particular teacher. Yes. Okay. Wise not to, I think, yes. yes. Uh, Guy, uh, thanks for that. Oh, cheers. Very good. Yeah. Uh, We've got an expert in the audience. <laughs> just a word about uh, the caption bubble. Yep. Um, I don't know when uh, it became uh, more popular in political cartoons, but the underlying idea was that if you had the caption underneath, and that was quite late in the piece, uh, that could always be subject to editorial uh, change and, uh, and second-guessing. But... Uh, if you put a caption bubble in the drawing as part of its composition, it was there to stay and it was expected that the cartoonist would not only do the drawing but provide the comment as well. I, I think um, that's very interesting, Jeff, because we've got a big Molnar collection in, in the library and the, um, the Molnar always liked to write a caption underneath and in the Herald it was printed but we've got his original cartoons where he's written down the caption and then I think sometimes you've got pasted over the top and editors changed it and uh, you can see that playing out. I don't know, Jeff, if you're able to give a better answer on the, the printing reproduction process than me because in terms of um, 
the importance, the shift from woodblock to photo, um, photo engraving and letterpress and how that impacted on, on how artists work? I don't think I can, Guy. That was <laughs> largely, um, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it already I think happened. my early, early days, uh, it was uh, photo engraved. Yeah. And for photographs, there was a screen, a dot screen put through the, uh, the image and that provided the gradations. But, uh, uh, and I think the cartoons and the freehand artwork were subject to the same sort of treatment. But then after that, you know, it became digitised and it was all different. Thank you. Okay, that looks to be it for questions. Can you all join me in thanking once again Dr Guy Hanson? If you haven't already done so, we now invite you to go upstairs to the ground floor to see the exhibition, hopefully not for the first time that you'll be seeing it. And if that's not enough, you can go to our bookshop and buy the catalogue for 10% off for those of you viewing on the Facebook stream. It is also available online. Um, uh, also, I'd like to encourage anyone uh, watching on our stream to go and have a look, and for those in the audience as well, to go and have a look at our podcast and our other streams on the Facebook page. We have a wonderful uh, big swathe of collection that you can go back and view our previous events. Thank you, everybody, for attending this afternoon, and we'll hope to see you back at the library again soon. Thank you.